you know, let's not beat around the bush. We live in a society where there's toxic trespass. Whether we know it or not, and whether we allow it or not, we have been exposed to a plethora of contaminants. Whether these are emerging contaminants, phthalates and um, parabens from personal care products and makeup, or whether they're contaminants of concern from hazardous waste sites like arsenic and lead. I think that introducing the general concept of toxic trespass, right? I think that's just important. Welcome to the Journal of the Southwest Radio Hour, a production of the Southwest Center. You're listening to the third installment in an ongoing series about water in the West. I'm your host, Patricia Schwartz. In this episode, we look at the largely obscured but incredibly pervasive phenomenon of toxic trespass. The non-consensual infiltration of our homes, bodies, and bloodstreams by harmful substances and chemicals which affect us all to an increasing degree, and has come even further into focus during the COVID-19 pandemic. I spoke with Dr. Monica Ramirez-Andriata of the University of Arizona about her work in communities near the Environmental Protection Agency's Superfund cleanup sites, and explore the history and shortcomings of the systems we rely on to protect us from exposure. No matter where you live, you are almost certainly exposed every day to a unique and variable cocktail of contaminants, most of which were unleashed on the world at some point by industry. The latent consequences of our everyday exposure to these substances are hard to make out. Like climate change and other existential threats facing humankind, it's more of a death by a thousand cuts, or has definitely seemed in the past like some future generation's problem. Through the 1950s, toxicology testing often consisted of exposing a subject to the chemical in question and waiting to see if they dropped dead. Subjects were usually rats, though sometimes they were humans, working in or living near factories. If death was not immediate, the chemical was, and largely still is, usually approved. The assumption of harmlessness has been granted to low doses of just about all substances throughout the evolution of industry, including ones we now recognize as harmful, like mercury and asbestos. The unequivocal effects of long exposures are notoriously hard to detect, and they're damn near impossible to prove. Scientists at work for the large corporations responsible for reshaping the American landscape readily made use of this fact in their pursuit of lax regulations on contaminants like lead and carbon monoxide. Over decades, hard-won environmental reforms have alleviated some of the most apparent polluters. We now see fewer of the apocalyptic contamination events that persisted through the 1980s and inspired our current legislation. Fewer spontaneous fires burning on the top of rivers like the Cuyahoga in Cleveland, or backyards bubbling over with hazardous sludge like those of Love Canal, New York. But, in many ways, we are still living under this benefit-of-the-doubt legacy. Exact enumerations vary wildly among public health experts, but we can conservatively estimate to have decent toxicological information for about 3% of the over 35,000 chemicals in active legal use in the United States. Some of these untested substances are things I actively bring into my home, in the case of beauty products, electronic gadgets, and increasingly elaborate packaging. 
But depending on where you wish or can afford to live, your individual choices might not make much of a difference. That, to me, is the crux of our need to turn attention to the concept of environmental justice when speaking more broadly about the sustainability of our futures and our present health. Trying to understand factors at the forefront of conversations about the current pandemic, like pre-existing conditions and the geographies of wellness, led me to Dr. Monica Ramirez-Andriada, who works on these staggering uncertainties, quite literally, from the ground up. All right, you want to know about me, so I'll do my brief introduction. Hi! My name is Monica Ramirez Andreada, and I'm an assistant professor of environmental science with a joint appointment in the College of Public Health at the University of Arizona. I am a community-engaged environmental health scientist. I investigate the fate and transport of pollutants in environmental systems and ways to improve environmental health literacy. Dr. Ramirez Andreada's Environmental Science and Health Risk Lab integrates citizen science and art into solving questions posed by communities near toxic Superfund sites about the health risks they face from contaminated water and soils. The polluting corporations behind murky waters, hazardous landfills, and open mines cannot always be determined, and even then are not always legally liable, for various reasons, including reprieves due to acts of God, acts of war, or a plain inability to pay, about a third of them are left without a viable party to hold responsible for remediation. The national response to the contamination crisis was the creation of the Superfund program. The United States Environmental Protection Agency has a national priorities list slated for cleanup under the Superfund program. The actual act is called the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act of 1980. And it's the federal government's program to clean up the nation's uncontrolled hazardous waste. The EPA has a rating system of what gets listed. They give each site a score and then rank them. You can look that up right now, right, to see how many are currently listed. There are 1,334 sites on the EPA's national priority list as of this moment in 2020. These sites represent only some of the highest ranked and most threatening of the over 40,000 whose hazard risk assessment noted pollution but did not score high enough to merit funding for remediation. I'm speaking now just a few miles from a Superfund site, near the Tucson International Airport, which has left some insidious chemicals in local groundwater. The airport site was listed in 1983, and honestly, I just learned about it this month. If you haven't, it's probably worth looking into for your area. Over 53 million Americans live within 30 miles of a priority site. Uncounted others live near a site that probably should be designated but hasn't been. These are the eerie, abandoned ghosts of the nation's aggressive industrial past, as well as foreboding indications of what a future of inaction will look like. What we know of their history and the way they are currently managed is telling of the nation's priorities. What we don't know is more telling of its structural inequities and lopsided legacies of exploitation. Since its establishment 40 years ago, 424 sites have been through the full process and qualified for removal from the list. However, despite the program's lingering name, the majority of site cleanups have not actually been funded by the Superfund. It was originally created, as it's called, the Superfund, 
because it was the created by taxing chemical and petroleum industry. And so it established a trust fund for cleanup when you could not identify a responsible party. But I will highlight that the tax has not been renewed. So all of the cleanups that are going on are coming out of taxpayers' dollars. And this should aggravate the crap out of everybody to know that we are paying for the legacy of waste left behind by industry. The Superfund is one of various initiatives that have atrophied since their establishment in the early days of the Environmental Protection Agency. Congress has maintained the agency's yearly funding and underlying statutes to research and maintain environmental standards relatively static, despite intensifying political divisiveness and despite ever-evolving threats. Changes in executive institutions over time, however, tend to alter its priorities, power, and tone. EPA's directing administrators are appointed and removed by each incumbent president. As the country's two parties have raced towards their respective ideological poles, the EPA has often been dragged in tow. Since 2016, this administration has shortened the Federal Register by 25,000 pages, more than any before it, rolling back over 60 environmental regulations in the process. Primarily, the removal of regulations aims to buoy the fossil fuel and other industries, allowing them to continue to expand in the way the U.S. has often done best. Quickly, in ample measure, and without adequate consideration of long-term consequences beyond the growth model itself. A recent amendment to one of what our current president calls needless job-killing regulations has affected pieces of our foremost federal law governing water pollution. This year, one day after Earth Day 2020, during a pandemic which mandates clean water for its most basic defense strategy, The EPA's current director, Andrew Wheeler, consummated this administration's multi-year effort to redefine aspects of the Clean Water Act of 1972, excluding extensive stretches of previously protected wetlands and headwaters. Waterways that are ecologically vital and in many cases eventually feed into our drinking water systems. When President Trump took office, he immediately set in motion a process to remove and replace regulatory burdens that were stifling American innovation and economic development. Today's action fulfills a key promise of the president and lays the groundwork for his ultimate objective. With the EPA at its weakest in decades, it's hard now to imagine or remember a time when there was active bipartisan gusto for the expansion of environmental protections. Anti-pollution policy wasn't always a politicized contention. The EPA and Landmark National Environmental Policy Act were both signed into law under Republican Nixon, with little resistance, as a collective necessity in the 1970s political imagination. Clean air and clean water, the wise use of our land, the protection of wildlife, parks for all to enjoy. These are part of the birthright of every American. Partisan fissures in the environmental stance were predictably aggravated with Reagan's neoliberal tendencies but there remained broad support for principles around clean air and water for U.S. residents. George H.W. Bush's campaign trail promise to be the environmental president might not be the best-remembered part of his legacy. But despite ties to the oil industry, Bush Sr. passed a number of practical regulations on pollution, including the Clean Air Act of 1990, and organized programs for research into what he acknowledged was the serious threat of climate change. Here he is giving a unifying speech in Eastern Europe in 1989. 
one that in today's climate now seems somewhat controversial. Three vital spheres stand out in our partnership. Economics, the environment, and democratic and, and cultural exchange. And yet economic progress cannot be at the expense of the air we breathe and the water we drink. Six weeks ago in Mainz, I proposed cooperation between East and West on environmental issues. And that is why I will ask the United States Congress to appropriate $5 million to establish an international environmental center. The soundbites coming out of today's EPA have the ring of a different ethos, one of cost-benefit analyses incubated in corporate think tanks and nationalist strategies. Under the current administration, the EPA has been hit probably like, what, 30% budget cut at least. I do work with project managers at these Superfund sites and hear different stories or um, experiences from them, what it's like to work under an administration that values the environment and ecosystem services versus an administration that does not. The culture changes of what they can and cannot do, and that can be discouraging. And I'll also say, like with the current administration, if we remember 2015, 2016, that the administration was saying that you know, government agencies could not communicate with other stakeholders. And so the American Geophysical Union prepared a letter and stated, we are concerned about the federal agency directives to cease communication with the public. This was very scary to imagine that you wouldn't be able to talk to your federal agencies or they weren't able to talk to you. I mean, this is why people were setting up shop all around different parts of Boston, like all over the place of just doing massive government data download parties because they were very, very much concerned about losing critical information that had been previously provided. In terms of cleanups for regions that have already been polluted, recent cuts exacerbate a long-time budget shortfall, keeping the EPA from tackling its backlog of priority sites. Because their research centers the Southwest, the industry legacy the Ramirez-Andriata Lab has the most experience with is that of mining. Mining and industrial processes are primary sources of arsenic and heavy metal contamination in soils. States like Arizona, Nevada, and California are littered with mines, tens of thousands of them. Most are now defunct, but often not properly secured and almost never restored. Many don't appear on maps. By their own account, the EPA has no idea of the total amount of heavy metal drainage seeping out of abandoned mines in the American West every day as no comprehensive inventory nor monitoring program exists. The community of Dewey Humboldt is located in Yavapai County. That's in central Arizona, about an hour north of the capital city of Phoenix. And they basically are sandwiched between two uncontrolled sources of waste. Uh, there's about 3 million tons of mine healing sitting on a pile. And then on the other side of the highway, there is the smelter and flag that was left over after smelting. These two sources pose a risk to that community for potential exposure to arsenic and lead. Mine tailing and their associated other heavy metals are prone to wind dispersion and water erosion. And so surface soils adjacent to, beneath, or downwind of arsenic release sources often have arsenic levels at or above regulatory contaminant limits. 
So if you have a large rain event, actually, and this happened in the Dewey Humboldt area, they had uh, rain and it accumulated and a large chunk of the mine tailing pile itself washed off and essentially moved across the highway into the community on the other side. And since we are in an arid, semi-arid climate, this is particularly of concern with climate change and with the drought. We can see that this is exasperated by our conditions. Dewey Humboldt has been home to smelting facilities and the Iron King mine since the earliest days of manifest colonial settler destiny. Extraction of gold, silver, copper, lead, and zinc peaked during World War II, but later dried up. The town's history bears some similarity with that of the multitude of others like it, but with a few notable distinctions. For one, the region was able to gain Superfund priority status in 2008, and part of the reason it got there, I think, makes for an apt allegory of the nation's history of commercialized contamination. Once extraction and smelting operations cease, the ravaged land mines occupy usually becomes worthless. But for a moment, industry had bigger plans for Dewey Humboldt. An exceptionally enterprising company out of Scottsdale bought up the plots with a scheme to recycle their abundant tailing stores for a second round of production. Ironite Product Company's idea of mixing mine waste with urea and sulfuric acid produced a miraculous greening supplement for golf courses and football fields across the North American continent. Ironite is the fertilizer supplement recommended by professionals. To correct plant deficiencies, Ironite supplies vital nutrients in an easy-to-use form. Ironite's slow-release pellets won't burn, while it improves the soil, promotes deeper roots, and healthier color. From industrial applications to homeowners' yards, Ironite is a simple and effective way to turn yellow to green. For greener lawns and gardens, make it right with Ironite. It could have been a new frontier of chemical recycling or at least making the most of a bad situation. That is, until Ironite's exorbitant concentration of heavy metal toxins was revealed, and lawsuits abounded. Following in the tradition of the mine and smelter which first unearthed it, the Ironite company did not remove the lead and arsenic from Dewey Humboldt's dirt. Under growing pressures from consumers, the EPA conducted studies on the product's potential to leach carcinogenic contaminants into lawns, eventually concluding that the heavy metals scooped up along with fertilizing materials from Humboldt's soil was indeed still present and bioavailable after its reprocessing. A coalition of environmental groups got ironite out of stores more rapidly than its source tailings could ever be addressed, but having proven that even the treated substance was toxic, the EPA could hardly ignore the soil left at the site. Some years later, Dewey Humboldt was added to the priority list. And eventually, Dr. Ramirez Andriata was assigned to work there. They came to work at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences Superfund Research Program on research sensation, which means making sure that the research products get into the hands of those who need it. This was a grant specially designed to tackle and understand what did it mean to live there, what would it mean for the environment, what would it mean for exposure from a chronic low level. And so in that role, I was really trying to get novel cleanup methodologies into the hands of EPA project managers. But while doing that, started thinking about the stakeholders. And in a meeting in 2008 in Dewey Humboldt, I was sitting in the back listening to the questions that community members were raising. And there was a pattern, you know, people very much wanted to know about their soil quality 
And they were particularly concerned because they grow home foods and they wanted to know if their soil was safe. And if so, like how much could they eat from their garden? Like, oh, wow, we're learning about the Superfund site. Has it impacted my residential area? Are my soils impacted? And how does that affect food production? At that meeting, I remember standing up and introducing myself. I said the community questions were very good. And I approached those community members and said, hey, I don't have specific answers, but it's a very interesting topic. And I just started my dissertation. Would you be interested in working together? And they're like, yeah, you know, sure. Let's see what happens. And that was the beginning of Garden Roots. When you go and meet people where they're at and you sit and listen, it's a very critical and important learning opportunity. Because I wanted to make sure whatever I did as a dissertation project and now as a scientist and professor that, that it can be used, that the research is addressing community need and addressing injustices. It angers me. I think it angered the community that they would even have to question about contamination in the residential area and if they can grow their own food. We know gardening is an important public health initiative. And so for that initiative to be diminished by pollution is incredibly unfair and unfortunate. We did see accumulation of arsenic in some of the edible portions of a selective plant families like the Asteraceae and Brassicaceae family. Looking at all the inputs into the garden, most of the time their irrigation water was also their drinking water. When we did the exposure assessment, it's actually very, very important to address the water. We had some people on the public water utility and some people on private wells. And in some of the samples submitted, Garden Roots revealed that the public water utility was exceeding the maximum contaminant level for arsenic. And this raised a ton of alarms. We shared the data with EPA and Arizona Department of Environmental Quality, and that utility received a notice of violation and a fine and had to get into compliance with one home that was incredibly high in arsenic. I actually worked with them to get them on the public water utility line. Even though that was above the drinking water standard, it was still well below their private well water concentration. And then if they wanted to be extra prudent or were very much relying on plants from the Asteraceae, Brassicaceae family, that they reduce their consumption of those selected plants. Environmental advocates have pushed for regulations on residual toxins in the foods we eat of the same kind as those for the water we drink. But for now, we don't have them. And the maximum limits we do have in federal regulations are pretty unclear. Levels that have been set by the EPA, so for example, the Safe Drinking Water Act, you would set an MCL or a maximum contaminant level to keep the general public between a risk range of one out of 10,000 excess cancer cases to one out of a million. That's the range that has been acceptable under the Safe Drinking Water Act. So if you calculate the increased excess cancer risk from exposure to this chemical over your lifetime above your existing cancer risk of just living, irregardless of living near the Superfund site, or irregardless of having arsenic in your water. You can look up in general, like our risk to developing cancer is blank. And for arsenic, the drinking water standards at 10 micrograms per liter, that's keeping the general public's risk at around one to five out of 10,000, depending on how you adjust the intake rate. When we're talking about cancer, one out of 10,000 seems like a lot to me, especially when that figure leaves out a multitude of confounding factors and personal circumstances including those which early toxicology had not tried to explain. 
one thing is to know right off the bat, like toxicologists haven't made good headway in understanding mixtures, being exposed to a variety of different pollutants at one time. We don't know fully how that bombards or operates within the system. We're still grappling to understand the exposure assessment model at the most basic level would look at one contaminant at a time. So there's already an issue just in terms of how being exposed to mixtures affects health. So among the tools we have, there is no real way to quantify the comprehensive exposure risk of living near industrial waste. Intensive case studies of identified Superfund regions can help refine the risk model for others. Risk assessment is a model used to try to estimate how much someone would be exposed on a daily basis to then extrapolate that daily, estimated daily exposure to a cumulative risk over their lifetime. That's a big part of garden roots, particularly since it stemmed from how much could I eat, what you should grow and what you should not grow based on the exposure assessment. You'll take measurements in the environment, so you'll have a concentration in micrograms per liter, and you will make a variety of assumptions. You'll look at intake rates, like an average adult will drink blank liters of water a day. Then you have what we call a bioaccessibility value, which is like once you consume it, what's the percentage of that chemical to be absorbed by your body? Then you would have duration. But for example, the exposure assessment will say 350 days you're exposed. And that's giving you 15 days to like go on vacation or not be at your house. There's so many assumptions, but the bottom line is you do an exposure calculation to get the micrograms of that element or contaminant per kilogram of body weight per day, what we call an average daily dose. And then you could use that value into a risk characterization, what would be your increased excess lifetime cancer risk, whether non-cancer health effects are likely or unlikely. Traditional risk assessments refer to a general public. But I wonder, who really does that include? What I found most striking about these risk thresholds is their attempt at a one-size-fits-all metric, when a walk through my or any city readily demonstrates acute discrepancies in the lifestyles and livelihoods of the people living within it. The EPA's jurisdiction, even at the regional level, covers a striking diversity of landscapes and climates. Though, pollution of all kinds tends to be concentrated in what are called national sacrifice zones. Areas of damage deemed too profound, permanent, or economically necessary to be prioritized for remediation and reinvestment. Sacrifice zones can contain multiple polluting enterprises or waste sites and are almost always found in or near lower-resourced communities of color. Now you bring in justice, right? Or I should say injustice. There are people who are disproportionately suffering due to socioeconomic status factors being low income or a person of color or indigenous, you have some additional layers that are going to impose and definitely add to the risk and can contribute to different health outcomes or stresses that a individual might experience. Do you look at population under five, population over 65, uh, linguistic isolation, and then on top of that, you might see different types of diseases being more prevalent in environmental justice communities. And then you'd look at environmental factors, which would consist of proximity to waste, proximity to toxic release inventory sites, proximity to water discharge sites, 
air quality issues, proximity to highways, living in older homes with lead-based paint. I mean, the list goes on and on of what creates the injustice. How do those get considered with exposures? I would say that right now, in terms of environmental decision-making from government agencies and decision-makings about cleanup, I don't think it's adequately considered. I've heard Dr. Ramirez-Andriata give a shorthand for talking about environmental justice as the idea that your zip code can be more important than genetic code in determining your long-term health and quality of life. This is true not only of everyday realities, but can have intergenerational and epigenetic effects. Research is finding that less than half of your cancer risk can actually be determined by your genetics. That your doctor will warn you that it runs in families might have more to do with families' exposure to the same things. The geographic distributions of environmental exposure have identifiable patterns associated with the discrimination and disinvestment affecting other aspects of access, public health, and opportunity across the board. The process of getting on the Superfund priority list is not a simple one. Program data shows that Black, Indigenous, and people of color and economically marginalized communities have a lesser likelihood of making the list. Those in unincorporated regions, lacking political representation, citizenship documents, or a solid tax base, often struggle to gain attention for their causes. There's also the big challenge behind connecting exposures to health outcomes. That's always the smoking gun that people might be searching for, and it can be challenging to prove that. However, the voices of those who are suffering or living there need to be acknowledged and recognized because they're the ones experiencing it. And we need to challenge the current epidemiological model. What happens with epidemiology is if you don't have a good big end value and the stats don't prove it, then you're like, well, we didn't have enough data or based on our numbers, we don't see a significance, whereas you still have people that might be suffering. There's been controversy and contestation around who generates data and how the epidemiological model plays out in communities with exposures. Contaminant exposure itself does not appear on death certificates. Neither does racism, disinvestment, injustice, or climate crisis. But in the world we now live in, COVID-19 can. The global catastrophe of the coronavirus has brought a lot of issues around uneven exposures and imposed vulnerabilities to light. Far from being the equalizer it is sometimes chalked up to be, we are seeing how it too functions as another misunderstood mixture variable, affecting people disproportionately and making collaborative work more difficult at the same time as it becomes more vital. The pandemic has affected all of us in some way. I want to acknowledge those who I had the honor of meeting and working with uh, in the communities who have passed away due to COVID-19 and that their deaths have not only significantly affected me emotionally, but also have significantly affected their families in town because they were champions in their communities. It's been really disheartening. I don't know how else to say the level of sadness that's brought to me and really makes you ask, like, what is essential? We've had to cancel sampling collection because it's just not worth the risk. And it's kind of a no-brainer, depending on your ethical compass, um, 
or what you deem essential. But I will say that it was an interesting conversation to have to hear the differences in opinion. But then in the end, I basically made the call based on the science and to be risk adverse with underserved rural communities that are now being hit who cannot sample because I don't think a water sample is worth the potential for any um, exposure. This pandemic has been a painful, vexing thing to contend with. The relationships created before it struck have proven to be lifelines. Well, it makes you think and modify, right? If we're not going to do this, well, actually, how can we serve these communities? Garden Roots, we had to keep postponing, postponing data sharing. Finally, I was like, we're just going to do it virtually. And we hit the technological literacy challenge. And, you know, we just work through that. We also have ongoing dialogues with the promotoras, the community health workers. And so we are now putting together ways in which to help and serve the communities that we work with due to the pandemic. With COVID, like other threats that came before it, we've been given numbers to represent an acceptable risk. But rarely are any part of these seemingly subjective figures digestible. Or are those affected given a chance to determine what is acceptable? Based on feedback through formative evaluation with different communities living near a hazardous waste site, I actually developed a fact sheet on what goes into these environmental health risk assessments to communicate how that value feeds into a risk characterization. I showed them the math. This is how I came up with these values. And it's your choice to decide if you're risk adverse or risk friendly. Someone submitted radishes. And so, of course, in the meeting, people are like, you're crazy. I don't eat radishes every day. Your model's assuming I have a radish a day. And they actually recalculated their exposure because the EPA doesn't go through and explain all of this, right? Using a suite of tests, the Garden Roots team can begin to unravel the exposure enigma on a household basis. The larger part of the lab's work is to break down the results and help people understand what they actually mean. We're going to report the data back at the end of every year. How do you do that? Well, let's uh, talk to the people who would be the end user. There is an incredible amount of work that goes into the data sharing. Multimedia specialist Dorsey Kaufman and I spent a ton of time doing formative and summative evaluation on how to show these concentration values, how to show standards or regulatory advisories to the general public and the community members that we're working with or our co-researchers. Drawing on Dr. Ramirez Andriata's somewhat unconventional pathway to becoming a career scientist, the lab stakes its success in multidisciplinary, multisensory efforts. I was a molecular and cellular biology major while doing studio art photography and my minor in Spanish. I would try to propel science out of the mundane with art, and that led to really great experiences. So much that I wasn't going to go and pursue the science. I was actually uh, working at a museum and exhibiting work in different galleries and just trying to build my portfolio. And it was actually when I read that we didn't ratify the Kyoto Protocol, right, around that time period, 2001, that I just got super pissed that I had to, like, do something for climate change. And that's what led me to go back to the sciences. I don't know how to do science without art, and I don't know how to do art without science. That intersection is incredibly exciting because that's the only intersection I know where to work at. And I can't wait to keep building that component. Data is only as useful as it is understood. 
Garden Roots multimedia illustrations make otherwise indiscernible long-term processes comprehensible for those experiencing them and visible for researchers, policymakers, and corporations who are not. How do we work together? How do we apply this information and actually create some change on the ground and have this transfer of knowledge and bi-directional, of course, right? I think that what I explained in the beginning of like this research translation, you know, that grant where it had the translation core written out was very much like this monodirectional, you know, scientists need to get the research in the hands who need it. But really it's about the bi-directionality. It's about the conversation, representation of, of all voices and those at the table is what can make translational work truly work and be sustainable. So you have your end user informing science, and unfortunately we don't do enough of it. Environmental justice is about access to clean water, clean soils, access to the information regarding environmental quality, and access to pathways to being part of that environmental decision-making process. And that's why I would say that when you start to partner and do a participatory research and action approach, essentially you're making sure that those voices are integrated into the scientific methodology and design and that the products would aim to alleviate and address. Applied and collaborative examination of the circumstances of toxic trespass can get at the disparity between policy and science which has been the cause of delays in legal responses to threats like arsenic and lead, which we have understood for decades. Americans trust our governing bodies to make decisions about complicated matters which seem beyond our range of expertise and above our pay grade as average citizens. The researchers designated to produce primary data around such issues are discouraged from advocacy and supposed to let science speak for itself. But no matter the degree of scientific certainty around the adverse effects of a given chemical, it remains just one of the inputs into the regulation equation. Cost-benefit analyses are the dominant instrument the EPA, especially under Trump, uses to make policy decisions. Again and again, concrete sums have been calculated to compare the quote-unquote additional cost to society of keeping a harmful chemical in use against the benefit gained by its unregulated production. Resulting disease, disability, and premature death are translated into monetary expenditures and weighed against the revenue it generates. Often, these consequences fail to tip the scales away from industrial growth. Leaving choices as high-risk, variable, and ultimately personal up to economic algorithms is not, I think, what most of us have in mind. In commercial systems where the science often cannot speak for itself, it's even more important that the experiences of those affected are listened to. The strengthening of relationships between humans and their immediate environments is the only recourse to toxic trespass. When we look to public health, we need to look at the environment, and vice versa. It tends to follow that when one is in danger, the other is too. This episode was produced by Patricia Schwartz, with sound editing by Carlos Quintero for the Southwest Center at the University of Arizona. Thanks for listening.